All right, all right. Um, you guys, let's, uh, let's stand for our scripture reading, okay? This comes from uh, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slave to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, Father, we just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity we have this morning to come around the teaching of Scripture and to learn your word. And God, we are, we're, we are desperate for you. We are eager for you. We're excited for you to speak and for you to shape us into your image. And so we just ask that this time would be well spent, that you would have our full attention. And anything that might be threatening to, to, to get in the way of what you want to do today and how you want to speak, God, we pray that all of that would fade into the background and we would seek you, seek your face in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so welcome to like just another super chill, laid back message from Paul. Or wait, that's not what this is at all. Um, he is fired up and that's to put it mildly. But remember from the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, Paul by the Spirit has revealed that we are all children of God by faith. And this is important because we are, there's no like tiered, premier, like first class access to God's family. Whether you are female or male, rich or poor, black or white, we are all one in Christ. That is the word from Galatians, meaning that we are, have all been incorporated into Christ's body. And as his body, we retain our differences. We retain our differences, but we are all equally beloved. And then you add to that from last week, Brooke, I think, uh, did a great job sort of unfolding for you the reality of your new identity in Jesus. We used to be, according to chapter 4 and verse 3, enslaved under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, Christ sent his son, verse 4, so that we might receive adoption to sonship. So what that means according to Brooks' reading, and I agree, is that you have a whole new life as a result of the work of Jesus. You've been given divine purpose for your life. You have God's favor resting on you. You've been given God's presence as your constant companion. And in other words, God is your father, and you have a share in the inheritance of his kingdom. Now this is, um, I don't know about you, but as I, as I read about all of this, some of it sounds a little bit like Christian cliche or some of it has become so familiar that it sort of passes in one ear and out the other. But I'm here to tell you that that is not a stretch of the imagination. Like you are a child of God. This is not wishful thinking. This is exactly what God has said about who you are now. Things have fundamentally changed. You are now a child of God. You used to be a slave. But now you are an adopted, beloved child of God by faith. And I've long said that the, this is the most important thing about you, is who God says that you are. And I also believe that the best thing that you can do with that new reality of your new identity is to respond to him by loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And that's all really good news, and one might argue a good way to end the letter. So what is all of this that Paul is getting into here, and what's he all fired up about? Well, if you notice the rhetorical question, why are you going back to slavery? Look at verse 9 again. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved all over again? It doesn't make any sense when you think about it. After everything that God has freely given you in Christ and everything that he went through in order to get it, now, now after everything, you're going to go back to a life of slavery. It doesn't make sense. So, so follow the logic with me. Um, this is Paul's logic. This would be like if a young man uh, was arrested for some crime and he was sentenced to, 20, let's say, 20 years in prison. And let's say, just by way of example, that he served 10 years, and then he was paroled after that. And he's a free man, and he's uh, still got a lot of life in front of him, and, and a lot uh, to live for, and all of that. But after some time of like earning a paycheck, and enjoying the mountains, and making a bunch of new friends, and maybe even starting a family, he decides to go back to prison, and to finish the rest of his time. It's crazy, right? Like, it's an, a crazy scenario that never happens. Well, it never happens in, in that way, but the more research that's done on the prison system in the United States, it actually does happen all the time. People go to prison, they grow accustomed to the prison life, then they become like more criminalized in the system to commit more violent crimes that got them there in the first place, and then as time goes on, they're more and more unprepared for life outside of prison. And then they're released and they're set free, but only for a short time because after that, they wind up back in prison. And eventually, it's like this vicious cycle where life behind bars is really the only life that they truly know. And not to stereotype or overgeneralize, but there are people in the system who are choosing, whether consciously or subconsciously, to live their whole lives essentially enslaved behind bars and with no freedom. So the scriptures are warning us against that exact cycle, but in your life with Jesus, when it comes to your adoption in God's family, when it comes to your freedom in Christ, don't turn back to and become enslaved again in that life that you used to live. So let me just cut to the chase and tell you what I believe the scripture is teaching us. I believe that the scripture teaches we, we do this in at least three ways, not on purpose, but deep beneath the surface of our consciousness. We do this by living lies, choosing habitual sin, and worshiping idols. But the scripture teaches us something really positive uh, as well, how to live as free people. Like, for example, if this message had a subtitle, it would be becoming who you already are. Like, live into the reality of your new identity. Don't go back to the old way of living. You are a child of God. Okay, so go with me on this for a moment. We are sometimes tempted to return to that life of slavery by living lies, choosing habitual sin, and worshiping idols. But why? Why would we ever choose to do that? If the life that Jesus has on offer is as good as it appears in Scripture, and by the way, it is, why would we ever turn back to slavery? So the way that, uh, to understand this from a biblical perspective, we need to understand what we were actually enslaved to. Uh, verse 3 says that we were enslaved to elemental spiritual forces, or in Greek, stoikaiē. right? None of you care, but whatever. Just, <laughs> just hang with me. 
stoikai. And, uh, and in verse 8, the, they, they're referred to as those who by nature are not gods. Or in verse 9, don't turn back to those weak and miserable forces. It's that word forces. Okay, so what are we talking about here? The stoikai, what are these forces? Well, they are God's rival spiritual powers. You may know them as the Satan or the kingdom of darkness or the demonic, but I would argue another sort of common biblical moniker for God's rivals are false gods. For example, look at Psalm 40 verse 4. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Or Amos 2 verse 4, it says, they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not uh, kept his decrees because they have been led astray by, there's that term again, false gods. Now in the West, we have read these verses wrong, in my humble opinion. When we read these verses, when we read false gods, what we interpret is made-up gods. Made-up gods. They're not real. They're imaginative. Because we're monotheists. There is only one true God. To which Bible scholars say, yes, you're right. There is only one true God. But if the false gods that are referenced in those verses that I just read and many others throughout the library of Scripture, if those false gods are made up, imaginative, then how could you ever turn to follow them or be enslaved to them or be led astray by them? And why is the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, the simple biblical answer to that is because they're not false gods. They're not made, or excuse me, they're not made up gods. They are real spiritual powers. They are real spiritual forces who oppose God and his kingdom. Now, they don't have all power, and they're not, they don't have all knowledge like God does, nor is there any danger of them actually toppling over God's throne. Remember, verse 9 says that they are weak and miserable. But they do have authority, albeit limited. They have authority, and they do have dominion in the world. Now, I wish that we had the time to do like a deep dive on their origin because it is a fascinating study. But suffice to say, God originally gave humanity dominion over the earth. That's what we were created for, to actually partner with God in the flourishing of everything. But after the fall, Adam and Eve, they were, uh, uh, they were deceived. They were tempted by the Satan to reject God's loving rule. And as a result, they became enslaved to the kingdom of darkness instead of ruling over it. And this is an important part of the story of the Bible. And you can see evidence of this sort of trickling through as a motif throughout the, the whole of the Bible. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. It says, as for you, uh, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I promise this is going to get encouraging in just a few minutes if you can <laughs> hang tight. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once lived when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So is the kingdom of darkness made up imaginative? Or is there real spiritual powers at play who are opposing themselves or opposing God? The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So whether we are aware of them or not, whether we acknowledge they exist or maybe not because we are sophisticated modern thinkers or whatever, there are competing spiritual forces in the world. 
And because of sin and the fall and rebellion, we had intended, God had intended us to be in dominion over them, but we in turn surrendered that and have become enslaved to them. The key word is we were enslaved. It's actually in the past because God in Christ has claimed authority over the kingdom of darkness. God in Christ has claimed victory over the kingdom of darkness. One of my favorite passages in the whole of the Bible is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. We're sort of picking it up mid-sentence. His incomparably great power for us who believe. And that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. So in other words, for any would-be rival, for any would-be rival of Jesus, Jesus on the throne, in the grave, risen again, and on his throne, has you beat. There is no true contest. Um, Colossians 1 puts it like this. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Notice the past tense again. The work has been completed. We have been rescued and we have been brought into the family of God. One more. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. You like how I brought it back to Galatians? You're not that impressed, I can tell. That's okay. But, but what God did is truly impressive. Right from within the present evil age, the kingdom of God has broken in. And you and I, the children of God, are the evidence of God's victory. We have been set free from our slavery. We are no longer slaves. We are now children designed by God, empowered by God to walk free. You are the evidence that the kingdom of God has broken in. So you are free from slavery to sin and slavery to the kingdom of darkness. And you are free to, in the language of verse 9, have relationship with God. You know God and, check that, are known by God. It's this beautiful uh, new reality that not only do you have your like free ticket to heaven punched, you on top of all of that, you also have this new relationship with God where you are known by him. He knows you, you know him. It's brilliant. But back up for a second because where is the world right now? Where's the world right now? Are we in the present evil age? Are we in the present evil age, or are we in the kingdom of God? Has the kingdom of God arrived through Jesus? Which is it? Present evil age? It's both. It's yes and. We're living in an epoch of time in biblical history that scholars call the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet. The kingdom of darkness has been defeated through the cross, but it's still here, and it is digging in for dear life. And the kingdom of God through Jesus has arrived, but it has not been fully realized, or in the language of Revelation, hasn't been fully consummated, not until Jesus' return at the end of days. 
So this is how it's possible for the world to be filled with profound beauty and redemption and reconciliation and songs of heaven like we're singing together and all of the good stuff, but it can also be filled with horrible evil at the same time. This is how it's also possible for you to be set free. You are set free. That is who you are positionally in Christ. You are a child of God. You have been adopted. You are not enslaved any longer. And yet for at the same time for you to go back into slavery. It's possible for both to exist in tandem in the here and now. It is. And the kingdom of darkness is still here, working to deceive you and tempt you all over again, just like in the Garden of Eden. And I hope for most of you, as you're hearing me talk, you're thinking to yourself like, yeah, yeah, but not me. Not me. I'm never going to be enslaved again. And I'm with you going like, yeah, me too. Like, I don't want that for myself either. But I'm sure the Galatians wouldn't have said that. And yet Paul is here, kind of his head imploding. He's, he's going, come on, you guys. Because there are way more nuances to this than you might think. And Galatians is sort of carefully unfolding those nuances for us. First of all, there are conflicting desires in your heart. It's possible for you to want a couple of things at once. And so there are conflicting desires. And number two, there are corrupt social pressures all around you. And um, gosh, you guys, I wish we had tons of time for all of this, which we don't. But, um, but, uh, but there are a, a number of different things. Here, here's, here's, what, uh, here's what I mean, or here's what I think Paul means. Uh, one of the connections that uh, Brooke ran out of time to share with you last week about the first couple of verses of Galatians 4 is the similarity between these verses and the, uh, the, the book of Exodus in the Bible. Um, scholars call this section the New Exodus, the verses that we've been studying together today. The book of Exodus, it, as you know, if you're, uh, if you're familiar, or if you're not familiar, let me catch you up. The book of Exodus tells the story of God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. And the story of Galatians tells the story of God delivering his children from slavery to the spiritual powers. So they're con they're, they are stories that are um, congruent with one another. And the first Exodus, if you're familiar, is this incredible story of God's miraculous power. After 400 years, all of Israel wakes up one morning after the, the, the first Passover, and they walk out of Egypt to the promised land where, where they were intended to worship him, just like God had promised to Abraham. And one of the very painful parts of that story that a lot of Israel sort of wanted to scrub the history books of was that Israel made it one day. One day before they started complaining. And you remember what they said? Why did we ever leave Egypt just to die in the wilderness? And then God rescues them from Pharaoh's army. And then they start running out of water. And within a few hours, they start complaining again. Why did we leave Egypt? just to die of thirst in the wilderness. And then God miraculously provides them with water. And then they run out of food. And they start complaining, why did we ever leave Egypt just to starve out here in the wilderness? And then God gives them manna from heaven. And then they start getting tired of the food God was giving them. And they said, why did we ever leave Egypt? We ate so good over there. And then God gives them meat in the form of quail. 
And then God, and then Moses goes up to meet with God on Mount Sinai, and he's up there for a little bit too long for their liking. And so they start to complain again. Maybe he's dead. Maybe God has left us. Let's go make gods like the ones they worshiped in Egypt. And then God, in his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, gives the Ten Commandments and forgives them. And then a couple of weeks later, they go to spy out the land of promise. And they've discovered that the people in the promised land are way too powerful for them. And they complain. Why did we ever leave Egypt just to die at the hands of these enemies? Time and again, after repeatedly experiencing God's miraculous saving power, the people of God complain to him and they long for the days of slavery. Because as it turns out, their freedom was more demanding than their slavery was. How is that even possible? How is this even possible? Again, it's very easy for us to go, oh my gosh, those crazy Israelites, how could they possibly whatever? But let's for a moment consider their situation and what actually might be going on here. And again, the layers that I think Paul is trying to unfold for us here. In Galatians, first of all, their life of slavery was familiar, and in a way, it was safe. But the new life of freedom required trust in the Lord, especially when it doesn't make sense. We're out in the middle of the desert. There's millions of us, and there's no water anywhere. See, their new life of freedom required trust in the Lord when it didn't make sense, and it required daily dependence on him. And if God doesn't rain down this food from heaven, we're all going to starve. See, life with God is risky. We try and sanitize the story of the Bible and we try and clean that part up. But the reality is when you trust in God, it involves you embracing the risk. We are in the minority, if you hadn't noticed, in Central Oregon. We are in the minority. We are marching to the beat of the kingdom of God, which is very, very different from the rest of the world around us. But the invitation is for us to walk in freedom according to the kingdom of God and not in the, what I will describe as like the fairy tale American dream, which is actually not freedom, believe it or not. It's actually the opposite of that. So in a way, they were discovering that their freedom was more demanding. It required more trust than their days of slavery. Number two, their old way of life didn't require any courage. But their new way of life meant standing up to powerful enemies. See, this is fascinating. See, slavery in Egypt was making bricks. That's literally what they were doing. They were building Pharaoh's empire. It was boring. It was menial. You might even say it was dehumanizing. But there was zero courage required for it. Get up today and just kind of do the same thing you did yesterday. There will be food. There will be water if we just do Pharaoh's bidding. But standing up to the Canaanites as an inferior army, march, think about it, marching around Jericho singing worship songs. Like that requires a whole nother level of courage. And if you're familiar with the story, you'd know that there are several some odd million of the Israelites at this point, And there are two men that we read about. You remember these guys, Caleb and Joshua. They're the only two who have the courage to stare down their enemies and say, you know what? 
God has miraculously provided and saved us before. He has said that he is going to give us this promise. We believe it, and so therefore, we have the courage to carry out the work of God. We have the courage to stand and to fight. And this is, this is, again, something that we maybe undervalue and maybe one of the reasons why we might be tempted to go back into slavery because the, the new life requires this kind of courage. And the Israelites, although they had seen God move with power, only Caleb and Joshua had the courage to stick with it. Number, number three, in their old way of life, their hearts grew attached to the Egyptian idols. And the new way of life meant worshiping God alone. And this takes some retraining. Just ask someone who's battled addiction of one form or another. When you have spent your life turning to alcohol or nicotine or pornography or entertainment or shopping or really whatever else as an escape when life gets hard, it's not as simple as just saying no to it. Why? Because your, 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 your life has been conditioned to turn to it. Your heart, your mind, your body are trained to compulsively turn back to those things again. So as deeply as you desire to worship God and God alone, no one's questioning that. There's no judgment, especially coming from me, because I'm just as human as anyone else. As deeply as you desire to worship God, your flesh, which is the part of you that's still kind of corrupted, it still desires to worship your idol. And as we're going to find later in Galatians, your life is a mixture, always will be a mixture until the full consummation of the kingdom of God. The flesh and the spirit are pitted against each other inside of you. Right? Uh, one philosopher writes that the line between good and evil runs right down the middle of the human heart. We like to say, oh, yeah, 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 there are places in the world that are evil. There are things that are evil in the world. But the reality is that the division line between good and evil runs right through the center of the human heart. We are filled with the Spirit, but we also have our flesh. And as long as that is the case, there are competing desires at play. And I can just speak for myself. I've seen God's miraculous power pretty recently where God has moved in some remarkable ways. I've experienced him. I've spent thousands of hours in his presence and learning the word and, and praying to him. And yet I still have conflicting desires in my heart. I still have desires to, I, I, of course I want to, I think the deepest part of me, I want to worship him. I want to trust in him. I want to depend on him, live free and full of courage and all of that. But then there are other times where I am weak. I am afraid. I'm exhausted. I'm prideful. I'm egotistical. I'm distracted. And sometimes I just want what feels like the easy way out. And this is part of the human experience. So we live in this world where there are corrupt spiritual powers in play with real authority. And we also live in this world where good and evil runs right up and down the middle of my own heart. And if that were not a, enough, there are also corrupt social systems in play as well. Um, there's so much, I lifted a whole section of my teaching because I knew it was going to be a long one if I left it in there. But th this is a really fascinating study. There are corrupt social systems in the world in at, at play 
uh, in the world today and, and, and also in the first century. So Paul is referencing uh, the first century versions of corrupt social systems. He, he was uh, talking about the, um, the racial discrimination that was, talk, that, the, the, that was happening. He was also talking about like the inequity, social inequity of the, the rich and the poor. Um, but you also were contending with in the first century like the Greco-Roman pantheon where all around you there were temples, to, uh, temples and statues to Zeus and Poseidon and Athena, and you were socially and economically incentivized to pay homage. In fact, the Jews had this like religious exemption where they didn't have to pay homage to Zeus and Athena and all of them or whatever, but it was predicated on all of these other things, including the Jews had to sort of allow Rome into their synagogues and sponsor it, and they had to bow their knee to King Caesar and all of the rest. You also had uh, like the the Roman war machine that was uh, brutally stamping out any person or any group who refused to bow knee to Caesar as God. And so that is essentially what Paul is admonishing them, encouraging them, exhorting them, don't return to that kind of slavery. You're not actually being corrupted by that system anymore. You're in the family of God, in the kingdom of God, living free from all that. Today we're contending with things that are completely different from that. I just want to name a few. The first one, uh, we live in an age of digital distraction. Your attention is the most prized commodity in our modern economy. It's your eyeballs and it's your brain. It's the most prized commodity. And, and, and not only that, we have the entire world in our pockets. And um, our teenagers who don't have fully formed prefrontal cortexes and their brains are still being developed are being subjected to this really, really alarming uh, amount of content and they're being digitally addicted. It's the new form of addiction. We also live in a time where we're contending with like corruption in media and politics that, and um, we could say a lot about that. But anytime you open up your newsfeed and you start reading articles, it's very rare that you're actually just reading straight facts or real journalism. You're actually being sold agenda-laden narratives that are built on fear and greed and all other base human emotions. And that is something that we are contending with. That is a social system that's, that's in our world. We're also living in the era of rampant consumerism. This is one of my favorite soapboxes, so sorry. You're kind of trapped. Um, we live in this age of rampant consumerism, which I believe is a rival vision of the good life. It's like a, 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 it's, uh, you're being sold a vision of, of a life of ease and comfort where accumulation and recreation is how you experience the good life. It's how you actually become happy. And the reality is that anytime we look at an ad or we watch a new movie or whatever, we are being pulled into that narrative. And there are these very complex but also really subtle life scripts that are playing on repeat in our culture that orient us towards slavery to an American fairy tale and not to actual freedom in Christ. Are you with me on that? There are these complex, subtle life scripts that are playing on repeat in our culture that orient us towards slavery to an American fairy tale, not freedom in Christ. You need more money. You need more you're not going to be happy until you have more. Are you kidding me? We live at, I have the, like, the, well, this fantastic standard of living. And yet, 
somehow myself, my wife, and my kids feel this need to get more or newer or better or more whatever. You're entitled to a life free of pain and suffering. Whatever your opposing political party is, is evil and must be stopped. Do whatever makes you happy. Life is basically about you. These are just a few of the subtle, complex life scripts that are playing on repeat in our cultural milieu that are enslaving you to American fairy tale and keeping you from experiencing the, the life that Jesus has on offer. These are lies that we're hearing on, on repeat. Oftentimes, these are under the surface of our consciousness in our cultural narrative, and when we live by them, we're held hostage by them. If you, if you choose to be held hostage by this myth that you need way, way more in order to be happy, then that's going to be a hamster wheel in your life for as long as you're here. And so the message of Galatians is to become untethered to those scripts and to that narrative that conspires against your flourishing. And the way that Paul suggests that we do that is by living as free children of God. Live as free children of God. Or another way of saying that is live like you already are. This is already true, and so we can simply live into it. Um, three things. If, if we're tempted to live lies, then, then the way to respond to that is anchor your life in what's actually true. Colossians teaches us to let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. So this is you becoming more conscious and aware of the other competing narratives that are vying for your allegiance. And it's, um, and it's retraining your mind and your heart to want the kinds of things that God wants for you. I love 1 John 5, or first, excuse me, 1 John 1, 5. It says, this is the message that we heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live out the truth, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This is, the, this is the word of Christ. This is what is actually true about reality and about you, especially now that you are in his kingdom. The truth is that God is good, that you are his child, that he has sent his spirit to be in you. He has, in the language of Ephesians, given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has a vision for your life, and he's coming back again to take his throne in the city of God, hopefully really soon. This is the truth that needs to pervade our thinking. This is the kind of truth that Caleb and Joshua were able to see that others were not able to see. They had untethered themselves from the narrative scripts that said they were better off in slavery. And they said, you know what? We believe what God has promised he's able also to perform. That's what we believe. Um, so that's one. Anchor yourself in the truth. Do you have a daily habit? of just being in God's word? Do you have that as a part of your daily practice? Such a good idea. Such a good idea. And I'm not just saying that because I'm kind of nerdy about the Bible. I'm saying that because it has genuinely changed my entire life. It has. In the place of choosing habitual sin, instead, train to become like Jesus. 
trained to become like Jesus. The scripture teaches that we are not to be conformed into the image of this world, but to be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. So in other words, what we need if we are going to um, live a holy life, both in the moral sense, but in the anthropological sense as well, if we are going to be holy and oriented towards God's vision of the good life, then we need to train to become like him. Um, I love, uh, this is one of the main reasons why we're doing Riverbend at Night. Riverbend at Night is this thing that has been on my heart to do for years now. Um, where we are actually learning to practice the way of Jesus together. Because quite honestly, we've got a lot of really great sermons. There's lots of really great books you can read and all of that. But we need more than just information transfer if we are going to become more like Jesus. Like if this is all just about knowledge, like getting truth into your head, you would have nailed the Christian life by now. Um, because maybe you're not super consistent at church or whatever. Maybe you just kind of drop in or drop out, but we are so literate and we have so many resources at our, at our disposal. There are thousands of hours of podcasts that I recommend you listen to, by the way. We're not down on learning, but if intellectual assent was all that was required for you to be a holy person, you would have it nailed by now. The reality is we need more than just knowledge in order to become like Jesus. And so Riverbend at Night is like a discipleship model where we listen to the word, we talk about it, and then we go and practice it and give constant feedback. So anyways, just another really shameless plug for you to come out 6.30 to 8.30 on Sunday nights. Um, and um, by the way, this word, I, uh, word choice is really specific. I, I said training to become like Jesus, not trying to become like Jesus. So a lot of times the way that we've internalized this message is like, just do better. Can you just do better? And you go, I don't know. I've been trying all this time to do better. And I'm still basically the same person I was five years ago. The reality is, is that we don't need more uh, willpower we actually need more training, and that's where practice comes in. And finally, in place of serving idols, commit yourself to defiant countercultural allegiance to Jesus. This is what we're about. Is that maybe a lot of our world is, is caught up in this, this fairy tale of, um, of the American dream. And we're not down on that stuff, but we're just like not going to live our lives loving possessions or loving um, what, we, what we can gain on this, and, and this earth. You remember Jesus said, um, what, is it, what good does it do a man to, to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? See, we, we want to be the kinds of people who see the truth for what it is. We become holy that God is holy. And then we want to defiantly stand against the, the, the corrupted life scripts that go against the way of Jesus. And we say, hey, we're people of God. We live free in his presence. So this is the, the spirit and the attitude of guys like Joshua and Caleb. By the way, they're the only men of their generation that got to go into the promised land. And into their 80s, they were like, what hills can we conquer? What, 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 what places can we take for God's kingdom? It's just so beautiful. Psalm 24, verse 4 says, the, um, 
is this psalm about um, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who, who can go and be with God? Well, it's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. So we are living lives of worship, y'all. Like that's what we get to do. Like we get to wake up in the morning and we get to worship. And what we, we either do that intentionally or unintentionally. Either we'll wind up unintentionally worshiping something or someone other than God, or we can actually say, you know what? I live my life in surrender and submission to him. And what this looks like is actually so beautiful because we are seeking God. Like this is the invitation, is seeking God. And uh, I just want to remind you one last time of that verse 9. It says, because of what God has done, now you know God and he knows you. In other words, the life that God is inviting you to is in response to his salvation, redemptive work in your life so that you can be brought into his family and enjoy his divine hospitality today, tomorrow, and into eternity. So while this might seem like high challenge, it actually comes with great joy because there is no better life than walking free in the presence of God. There's no better life than being his children. Amen? Amen. So no turning back, right? We are oriented towards God's vision of the good life. We are walking in the truth. We are um, we're not giving our, our souls or our hearts to idols. And uh, we, are, um, we are waiting for that day where Jesus takes his throne in the city of God. We tra- we train, and then finally we train to become like Jesus. Amen. This is good stuff. Let's stand and let's pray together. Jesus, we uh, just come before you and we say thank you so much because if it were not for your great love for us and if it were not for your sacrifice, we wouldn't have this place, we wouldn't have this standing, we wouldn't be adopted into your family, but we are now because of what you've done. And we have been set free from the powers of darkness and we've been set free from the power of sin that, held, that previously held us in prison. I just want to encourage you guys to to, to genuinely, from the heart, believe that, internalize that. God has, in fact, set you free. That's good news. And then our decision is to, to, to stay on that path, to not turn back to a life of slavery. And maybe, like a lot of the world in like the Israelites of old, we have been pulled, tempted, deceived to head back to Egypt where it's safer or easier or more predictable. And we just want to invite the Holy Spirit and to bring conviction, not shame, not guilt, not condemnation, Which is, God, where have I been believing lies? Where have I been choosing to habitually go against your will for my life and to sin? 
And where have I been lifting my heart to idols? Just notice as the Holy Spirit comes to you, he's not shaming you, guilting you, contemning you. He's just gently bringing things to the surface in order to set you free again. Just imagine him there just kind of going, whoops, you got yourself all tangled up in these knots one more time. Let me help you with that. And just see how he's untangling those in, in his presence. He's able to sort it all out. And as we simply seek him, and as we turn to him and say, you're the only one that we want, you're the only one that we want to be surrendered to, you're the only one we want to serve, just notice what begins to take place in your heart. That resilient, persistent joy begins to rise in you. And yeah, the life of of, of faith in God requires a lot of courage. It requires taking the road less traveled. It requires going uh, counter-cultural. But as you trust in him and as you walk with him, you, you begin to realize that, man, this is the only place I actually want to be is with you. So Holy Spirit, again, we just pray that you would come, that you would fall on us, that you would set us free and that you'd set us on this path to life. So now what we're going to do, you guys, is we're going to respond in worship. Worship is this tricky thing. And when I say worship, I mean more than just the keys behind us, although I do mean that. When I say worship, I, I mean like what is your heart Longing for what is your heart surrendered to? And like I've suggested, there are all these competing scripts and narratives that are saying, worship this, worship that, worship yourself, get more. Notice that that God is just inviting us to turn our attention to him, to become untethered to all of those other things and to just say, you're actually the one I worship. You and you alone are the one that I worship. So let your heart inform your body and your vocal cords and your mouth as you meditate and as you sing these words. Our prayer is that, God, you would be glorified through this singing, through this worship. But our prayer is also that as we sing, that our hearts would actually be retrained to love you and you only. So this is your act, church. This is your act, friends, sisters, brothers, of becoming untethered to the other things that vie for your allegiance. This is the way you instead just turn your heart to him. So as we sing, I just encourage you to sing aloud and let let your heart do the talking. 
and we also have uh, the prayer wall open and we also are gonna be coming forward during this next song to receive the bread and the cup. So go back to your seat after you grab it and we'll take it together as a church here in a few moments. But no one else is gonna worship for you. You're the only one who can do that. So God, be enthroned on these praises and Jesus come quickly. And we all prayed and said together, Amen. Let's sing.